The Guardian. Hello, I'm John Henley and this is the Business Podcast. Well, the world economy has had its half-yearly check from the good doctors in Washington and I'm afraid it's pretty much time to curl up and retreat under the duvet. The prognosis is really not very good. According to the IMF, we're in a dangerous place and risks have increased sharply. The worst of the symptoms are manifesting themselves in the United States and, most alarmingly of all, in Europe. All this comes in the week that Italy became the latest Eurozone country to have its credit rating downgraded and Greece veers ever closer to a total default. We'll be hearing from the eminent Greek economist Yanis Varoufakis later, but here in the studio with me is Guardian Economics writer Philip Inman and on the line from Washington, our economics editor Larry Elliott and from Rome, correspondent John Hooper. Larry, let's start with you if we can. The IMF has painted a pretty grim picture. Are we now really staring down the barrel of a genuine global depression? And what would that mean in practice? Well, potentially. I mean, at the moment, the IMF still think we're going to have bumpy, slow, uneven growth. That's their central forecast. But they do have an alternative scenario, which is pretty much the depression picture that you just painted. And if they, they're basically saying that if the European Union doesn't get its act together over the sovereign debt crisis, and if the Americans continue to bicker about what they do about the US economy, and those things go wrong in either one of those two major pivotal parts of the global economy, then what we could have is something like three percentage points off US growth and European growth, uh, which would obviously send us straight back into a double-dip recession. And that would that, that would really be effectively a, a, a global depression because you would have had a very deep downturn in 2008-9, not much mm. of a recovery in subsequent years, and then back into recession again. So that would be that would that would satisfy, I think, the conditions of a depression, which is a prolonged period of subpar or below potential growth. I mean, that 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 that, that would be that, that would be uh, pretty grim. Uh, I think uh, and what what so. would what kind of consequences would be would we be looking at in Britain, for example, if that were uh, to become the case? Well, we'd obviously see unemployment go above 10%. We'd see, we'd see negative growth. We'd see lots more firms going bust. We'd probably see another big downswing in the housing market. Um, we, would, you know, this would, we, would, we, would, we would certainly be back where we were, if not worse than we were in 2008-9. And um, very grim for you know, young people who are trying to get a job on that job. Very, very grim for um, retailers, the housing market, the whole, the whole shooting match. It would be, um, you know, and the idea that we could rebalance our economy through higher exports would be you know, purely for the birds because all other parts of the world would be in recession too and there'd be nobody to export our stuff too. So it would be, it would be, it would be a very, very grim uh, mm. Position indeed. Pretty miserable picture there. Would, so, would yeah. I mean, uh, they have to say this is not the IMS central forecast. They, they at the moment they're, they're they're sticking to the idea that the global economy will grow next year, mainly through the help of the emerging markets, and there'll be slow growth in the in the in the Western world. But you know, global unspectacular. That is their central forecast. They're not actually saying that they think that the the, uh, the downside 
scenario is the most likely. Hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, we're not there yet, are we, no. Philip? Um, I mean, Philip, economists, I mean, they're obviously people are talking of a, of a real crisis of confidence in world markets, in governments and in banks. Uh, the media is talking of, of very little else, obviously. Is there a sense that ultimately that all this talk of depression is enough for it actually to kind of become a self-fulfilling prophecy? Well, to some extent, I think that the UK government, if you talk to them privately, would admit that they overdid, they overcooked the the talk of broken Britain last year. And uh, they stripped almost everybody of any confidence they had in our ability to grow. So that is a big drag on any economic growth forecast, because you think everybody's not very confident about their ability to trade their way out of the the crisis. That said, there are some genuine causes for concern around. You know, it's it's a perfectly genuine that, you know, French banks are caught up in uh, lots of Greek mm. debt. And um, if Greece goes bust, are, you know, potentially got to have lots of money, taxpayer money thrown at them in order to yeah. prop them up. So, so, no, so no smoke without fire. Basically. So the, there are lots and lots of uh, concerns uh, about genuine big debts, which have been shuffled from private households onto banks and then from banks onto governments and still exist. The debts are still there. Mm. Larry, we've had, you know, any number of major stimulus efforts and bailouts in the in the state and across Europe. So, I mean, is what's happening now a sign that they've all failed or that we need more of the same? Well, they've certainly not succeeded in doing what they're supposed to do, which is to get these economies back on their feet. Um, The US is probably going to have more stimulus from the Federal Reserve any time soon. Um, They've had two lots of um, so-called unconventional measures, quantitative easing, where they buy bonds and flood the system with, with money and hope that that's going to get things going. We've had, in the UK, you know, interest rates slash from 5.5% to 0.5% and £200 billion worth of quantitative easing. So, you know, th- th- there has been an extraordinary policy response already um, to this crisis. And um, it's a sign, I think, of how serious the initial problem was mm. that these things have... Have, have not actually succeeded in doing what they would normally be expected to do, which is to get growth back up to sort of three, three, four percent in 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 the U.S. and the U.K. I mean, the, the, the counter argument, I suppose, is if they hadn't done this, then things would be even worse than they than they yeah. are. So I think that policymakers are really in a, in, a, in a rather difficult position where they've used up, you know, a large sl- slice of their of their ammunition and rapidly running out of bullets. So I think. And, they, well, is there any is there any hope that they will work? Is there any hope that that, that more of the same medicine will actually have the desired well, the bank, effect? The bank of England is, certainly believes that quantitative easing in the UK did work to raise the level of activity. Um, you know, it did it had, had a study this week which showed that it thought that there was there was some evidence that quantitative easing did work. Obviously, if you if you cut interest rates very very sharply and make money a lot cheaper, make borrowing a lot cheaper than you do actually helps to support activity. So, I mean, you know, the, the, I think the problem is that they're getting very little traction from these policies or much less traction than they thought that they would. And I think mm. that's mainly the result of the fact that the banking crisis was so severe. That, I mean, the, the, um, the problems burrowed that were so deeply into the, into the financial system that it's proving to be very, very difficult to, to deal with this because everybody in, in the private sector um, 
individuals are trying to get down their debt levels, banks are trying to get down their debt levels and, and put their balance sheets back into some sort of order, businesses are very, very reluctant to invest. So no matter what you do as a, as a finance minister or central bank governor, you know, you can do, you can do all the normal things, but if people don't, don't respond, then what your choice is you just stop doing it or you do a bit more. And that's, I think, you know, we're at the stage now where policymakers are going to do a bit more. In that's hope where we that are at the time. moment. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let, let's turn to Italy. John Hooper in Rome. I mean, Italy's future is the one that, that seems to be really frightening the economists this week, at least. Debt load far bigger than Greece, Ireland or Portugal and probably beyond the ability of the Eurozone to, to rescue. How much trouble is the Italian economy really in? A lot, and it has been in a lot of trouble for a very long time. Italy's problems go back at least 10 years. If you look at the GDP growth figures over that period, you can see that in real terms, the Italian economy is barely bigger than it was in 2001. This now is the central preoccupation of uh, analysts. It's quite clear in the Standard & Poor's analysis of the situation that their main fear is not as previously the deficit that uh, Italy is, is running, though that is what could trigger a crisis uh, concerning its debt. But the fact that the growth potential in the economy is so slight, mm. there are these fears that the economy will not grow over the next few years. There is the correlated fear, the or the consequent fear, that the calculations that the government has used for the austerity package that it finally approved last week, that those calculations are just wrong and that the deficit will not be closed up as, as quickly as they, they thought and that therefore Italy cannot get on with paying back its debt within the time frame that had been expected. Genuine Pro- economic woes. And, and I think that they go way beyond just the question of percentages of of, of, uh, government deficit. They they go deep into the warp and weft of the economy. One of the most striking passages in um, S&P's analysis is where they talk about the really quite extraordinary resistance from all sides in Italy to any kind of structural reform of its economy, whether it be professional bodies that don't want to see their monopolies Mm. challenged, whether it's companies in dominant positions that don't want to see their positions challenged, or the trade unions which have been consistently uh, hostile to any kind of rearrangement of the labor market that would benefit the outsiders at the expense of the insiders. That, that's very interesting because that really calls into question then also the, the sort of the clout of the politicians to do anything about it. There's on the one hand the lack of political will, uh, though Silvio Berlusconi continuously describes himself as a liberal with the implication of a neoliberal, he actually doesn't want to modernize his economy. And when he had opportunities to do so, he's shrunk from them, largely because liberalization measures would challenge his electoral constituency, would challenge, for example, and and make life more difficult for uh, small shopkeepers. For example, 
the chemists who have a, a very cozy arrangement whereby uh, they, 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 they can't have rivals set up within a, a certain distance of their shop. All of that he has shrunk away from. But at another level, there is a huge resistance within society so that even when bullied by the European Central Bank, he introduced into his austerity plan some measures that would indeed have introduced a bit of liberalization mm. competition into the economy. Those were soon seen out by vested interests in Parliament. So it's a social problem as much as a political one. Philip, I mean, the Italian government ha- has joined Washington in, in castigating the, the ratings agency particularly Standard and Poor's, after another humiliating downgrade in, in Italy this week. How much do investors, whether, whether institutional or otherwise, have to listen to ratings agencies when they're deciding if, if countries are, are trustworthy? Well, as with any analyst or advice, uh, you don't have to listen to it at all, but they do because they're going in-depth into looking at the um, sort of forecast for these countries and thinking, can they... Not just, no one's looking them to pay back their debts, um, like me with my mortgage on my home. They just want me to pay the interest. As long as I'm good for the interest, then everybody's happy. Really worried, yeah. <laughs> the problem is, are you going to be good for, your, uh, good for the interest, or, or do you just have to keep um, cutting back and cutting back in order to pay the interest? And um, Italy was always considered a relatively safe bet because it's a high-saving country that has spent a lot of that savings on its own loans. So individuals have loaned the government the money that the government then spends on them, and it's mm. become rather circular. But even that can't save them now because the debt is so huge. That they do have a lot of international investors, and they are worried about their money because they think if Greece goes bust, then uh, then everyone's going to sell uh, Italy and Spain and the rest of them, and they'll lose their money. And as John said, the, 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 the Italian economy simply isn't growing enough uh, to be able to really get down to the business of paying anything back anyway. Well, all my experience, obviously John's been there for, for a very long time, and all my experiences of going to Italy are exactly the same. All my friends there are wholly resistant to change. They mm. love Italy, they love being Italian, and they love the way that they do things as of 30, 40 years ago, and they just refuse to change. Refuse to change. OK, back to Larry in Washington. Larry, can we, can we look a little bit at, at Britain's situation all this, in, in all this? George Osborne has previously used the IMF's endorsement of his austerity plan to kind of beat his opponents around the head with. Its latest announcement this week seems to sound a rather more cautious note. Where does it actually leave him? They've fallen short of totally embarrassing George Osborne. They, they could have come out and said that he should move his policy to a plan B immediately, and they haven't done that, which I'm sure is, is, is greatly relieved by. What they have done is sort of flagged up their concern about the UK, firstly by downgrading their growth forecast from 1.5% this year to 1.1%, and by an even bigger margin next year from 2.3% to 1.6%. So that's the, this is the third time this year that the IMF has downgraded its forecast to the UK. It started 2011 with the idea that Britain would grow by 2%. We're now down to barely 1%. Mm. So it, it's flagged up in that way. But it's also put in the, its, its World Economic Outlook, its half-yearly health check of the global economy, a phrase which says that if, if things get worse, then the UK should be prepared to soften the, the uh, deficit reduction plan and use the fact that... It's, the government can borrow money very cheaply to do so. So it's not saying it should do that immediately, but it's saying that if things get materially worse over the coming months, then the UK should actually 
revisit the deficit reduction plan um, and and go more slowly because it's cut, it's concerned generally not just about the UK but everywhere that if if, if governments try to cut their budget deficits too quickly mm. they'll just kill growth. And it actually uses that phrase that over hasty deficit reduction would actually could actually kill growth. So it's sending out a warning sign to Osborne. I think you know it's partly because the government scared the life out of everybody by telling everybody that Britain was at risk of going bust, but it's partly because the deficit reduction plan is now starting to bite both through higher taxes, mm. VAT went up, and through the fact that you know, spending cuts are now starting to affect uh, large parts of the country. So um, growth is slow, and it's probably going to get slower, and, uh, and that's why the IMF is concerned. I mean, it, and the problem is if everybody's trying to cut their deficits at the same time, then you have a generalised cut in demand around the world, and that makes it extremely difficult mm. for countries like Britain, which are trying to export their way out of trouble, to do so. Yeah, so something to really to keep an eye on. Yeah. I mean, John, so what's the tone of public debate in Italy over the crisis there? I mean, who, who is sort of getting the blame for it? And is there any kind of acceptance that taxes are going to have to go up and spending is going to have to be cut? Here, the confrontation is really between the government on the one hand and the European Central Bank on the other, because it's been the European Central Bank and the markets which have been pressing Italy to try to cut that deficit, fearing that it will endanger its ability to pay back its debt. But the deficit itself is not actually very high. It's reckoned at the moment to be about 4.5%. And Silvio Berlusconi and some of his ministers have argued that really what they need to do is not try to attack the deficit too hard because that will slow further the, the growth in the economy. Uh, the criticism that's come at them from a number of quarters, and particularly from economists, is, okay, well, you may think that, but then why in your austerity plan did you not do more to stimulate growth? And that criticism is now being met to some extent, we're not quite sure how much, by plans being drawn up by the finance minister here, Giulio Tremonti, to uh, put in a new raft of measures to stimulate growth. Uh, but again, it will run up against the problem that um, we all identified, I think, earlier on, which mm. is the conservatism in society. Mm. That, by the way, uh, you won't be surprised to hear, extends to paying higher taxes. I mean, in terms of sort of national pride, I mean, what, what, how, did, how does the, 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 the man and the woman in the, in the street in Italy feel about being lumped in with Greece and, and Portugal and other sort of assorted southern European economic basket cases, really? I mean, what's, what's the feeling in Italy about that? Very bad. I, I think that that is the main reason why we're saying, for example, Silvio Berlusconi's popularity rating slumping below 25%. Um, there is a feeling that he has got Italy into this, 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 this mess and that it is humiliating. Oh, John, thanks very much. Well, I mean, let's hear from Greece now. The IMF has once more cast doubt on that country's government's ability to make deep enough cuts, and serious civil unrest is becoming a, a, a genuine threat to, to its stability. Um, our very own Aditya Chakraborty caught up with Yanis Varoufakis, an economist at the University of Athens, and he began by asking him just how bad the situation in Greece has become. Greece is in a kind of permafrost, economically speaking. Uh, society has frozen. Uh, 
under the freezing fog that initially emanated from the combination of the crisis, the austerity, which was the condition for the bailout loans. And we are caught in a typical debt recessionary cycle, a small economy, not a particularly strong economy, an economy which cannot devalue its way out of this conundrum, and an economy which is effectively being used by the European Union as a guinea pig on which various pharmaceuticals are being, financial pharmaceuticals are being tried out before exported to Ireland, to Portugal. Uh, don't forget that the creation of the European Financial Stability Fund was uh, modelled on uh, the loans that were given to Greece. So to answer your, your question succinctly, the Greek social economy is uh, in the depth of a depression and there is absolutely no sign of uh, a light at the, at the end of this particular tunnel. Break that down. Words like depression, deep freeze, all the rest of that. For people who don't know, don't follow closely what's going on in Greece, give them some sense of exactly what that means at street level. Those of, uh, of our listeners who remember the Thatcher era will remember how depressed parts of Britain were and how desperate the situation became uh, in the period 1980 to 1983-84. Let me remind you that during that period, uh, gross domestic product in the UK diminished by 1%. And uh, the Chancellor at the time only managed to reduce government spending by 1% for one year only. Compare and contrast to Greece. Greece has lost 20% of its GDP, and uh, we have a situation where government expenditure is falling exceedingly fast at a, t- at a time when the private sector is spending less and less. So it is immensely worse that, uh, than uh, the, the, the circumstances that Yorkshire and Newcastle faced uh, in the period 1980 to 1983. From here on, after the austerity... What happens next to Greece, do you think? Econom- Let's start with the economics. What, what, it's in its, what, its third straight year of recession? Third year, what entering you, the fourth. And what do you think, what, what, what are we looking at in the future for Greece, in the short-term future? It all depends on what happens at the European level. Mm. Because if, if, if uh, Mrs. Merkel and Mrs. Sarkozy and the powers that be in Europe could press a pause button and leave all the other things being equal, in other words, uh, within Europe outside of Greece. Greece will not be able to extricate itself from this quagmire that it finds itself in. We are going to be sinking deeper and deeper into the mire. Perhaps the rate at which we're sinking is going to slow down, but there is no way we can extricate ourselves from it. This is a vicious cycle and it simply feeds on itself. The the good news for Greece, if you can think of this as good, (laughs) is that the pause button doesn't exist in the European Union. Uh, The European Union, the Eurozone, is unraveling. And what will happen to Greece is utterly contingent upon the way in which this euro crisis unravels. Yanis Varoufakis there speaking to Aditya Chakraborty. Philip, let's let's wind up with you if we can. Uh, I mean, as Yanis was saying there, this is 
plainly an economic crisis that, that ultimately will need to be dealt with, not just by trained economists, but by the world's politicians. Do, I mean, do you think there's any reason to be in any way hopeful that enough of them grasp the, the extent of the crisis? And above all, have they got the capacity and the mandate um, that, that will allow them to, to act decisively and do what needs to be done? Well, I think you talk to politicians and, and you do meet some who do grasp the uh, the extent of the crisis. Uh, and even if you look across to the Tea Party, um, you know, there are people there who understand the crisis. But um, I think that it's the remedies that they have that's the problem. So uh, in the US, you have people talking about return to a gold standard, um, return to, you know, sound money, um, uh, which is basically a, a recipe for saying that, you know, we don't want any more funny money, no more lending. Well, of course, the whole world is built on lending. Um, that's how you invest uh, for the future. Um, and I think that one of the problems is is that they, that they represent constituencies of people who have lots of assets and don't want to lose them. So they have houses with house prices. They don't mm. want those house prices to go down. They have savings. They don't want those stock markets to go down. They have bonds, which basically are loans to either corporations or to governments. They don't want those to go down. And they tell their politicians to do absolutely everything possible to keep those asset prices high. Um, that's their way of surviving, and they want to pass them on to their children. Now, those, those are people who won during the boom years. Um, and they've come out of it. And a lot of their assets are still, to some extent, intact. And those politicians, we've talked about Berlusconi, they represent constituencies of people who want to preserve what they gained through the boom years. And that is one of the big problems, you know, whether it's Germany, Italy, mm. uh, Britain or the US. They all want to preserve what they've got. And they are very powerful constituencies. They disproportionately vote. They are, by and large, over 50. They make sure that the people are representing them who, who protect them. So, it's On the other hand, I mean, you've got there is a growing kind of sense that, that I can certainly feel, at least, of, of, of people, maybe a younger generation, really beginning to resent what's starting to be referred to as, you know, as feral finance and, and, and kind of out of control casino capitalism and, and the impact uh, that it's had on their lives and the way that most of the people who practice it seem to be simply getting richer. Um, is that going to play into this? I think it most definitely will. And I think you will start to see, I mean, you're almost painting a picture of a sort of intergenerational battle that's going to go on. Uh, if you look in Germany and the rise of the Pirate Party, you know, they've just got 9% of the uh, of the vote in the Berlin elections. Um, you look across the US where you've got, like uh, we, we were talking about it earlier, about occupations in Wall Street. These are young people who've identified some of the very basic problems of modern capitalism and said, this is nonsense, we're not participating in this, this is going to impoverish us, um, and quite obviously enriches other people who don't appear to do very much to, to get their money. Um, basically, they're just sitting on their assets and making sure that they uh, accumulate even more. So I do think that the more people are going to take to the streets. It's very interesting in Italy that they haven't. You know, if you look to Spain, mm. there is a very large movement of young people who are occupying squares in Madrid and making sure that the politicians know that they exist. At the moment, they still don't vote and they still don't carry weight in elections. So politicians are still looking to their traditional constituencies. Uh, as John Hooper was saying with Berlusconi, shopkeepers and all the rest yeah. of it, um, to get them re-elected. 
Um, so I think it will take time for these young people to really impose themselves politically and make politicians listen. Uh, unfortunately, uh, until they do, we could be living in a depression made by an older generation who refused to change. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there. Philip Inman, thank you very much indeed. Thanks also to Larry Elliott in Washington, John Hooper in Rome. The producer was Tim Maybe. I'm John Henley, and thank you very much for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.